Psalm 147. Uh, last week, I know we dealt with Psalm 142. And if you want to hear the messages that were done on Psalms 143 to 146, you can find those on Sermon Audio. They were about two years ago, roughly speaking. So we're skipping over them now and jumping to Psalm 147. Praise the Lord, for it is good to sing praises to our God, for it is pleasant and praise is beautiful. The Lord builds up Jerusalem. He gathers together the outcasts of Israel. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. He counts the number of the stars. He calls them all by name. Great is our Lord and mighty in power. His understanding is infinite. The Lord lifts up the humble. He casts the wicked down to the ground. Sing to the Lord with thanksgiving. Sing praises on the harp to our God, who covers the heavens with clouds, who prepares rain for the earth, who makes grass to grow on the mountains. He gives to the beast its food and to the young ravens that cry. He does not delight in the strength of the horse. He takes no pleasure in the legs of a man. The Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him, in those who hope in his mercy. Praise the Lord, O Jerusalem. Praise your God, O Zion, for he has strengthened the bars of your gates. He has blessed your children within you. He makes peace in your borders and fills you with the finest wheat. He sends out his command to the earth. His word runs very swiftly. He gives snow like wool. He scatters the frost like ashes. He casts out his hail like morsels. Who can stand before his cold? He sends out his word and melts them. He causes his wind to blow and the waters flow. He declares his word to Jacob, his statutes and his judgments to Israel. He has not dealt thus with any nation. And as for his judgments, they have not known them. Praise the Lord. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, this is the second of the five psalms of praise that close out the Psalter. And all of those psalms of praise begin and end with the word hallelujah. Each of them, however, gives praise to the Lord in a different way or approaches that subject of praise from a different perspective. And it seems um, most appropriate uh, as we look at this psalm that this psalm belonged to the time of Judah's return from captivity in Babylon. Verses 2 and 13 are very suggestive in this regard. The Lord builds up Jerusalem. He gathers together the outcasts of Israel. And then in verse 13, For he has strengthened the bars of your gates. He has blessed your children within you. Now that's not certain, and it doesn't really matter whether that's the case or not, but if we can kind of use that to prompt us to a um, better understanding of some of the verses of the psalm, I think that will be helpful. One of the characteristics of this psalm is 
that not only do you find in it use of the three most common names for God, God or Elohim, the Lord or Yahweh, and the Lord or Adonai, but you several times find the possessive pronoun attached to those names. And that is quite unusual. So in verse 1, it is good to sing praises to our God. Again in verse 5, great is our Lord and mighty in power. In verse 7, sing praises on the harp to our God. And finally, in verse 12, praise your God, O Zion. So you get this focus on the fact that this God, of whom the psalm speaks and whom the psalm praises, is our God. And the whole focus of the psalm is on the good, then, that the Lord does for his people and our response of love and thanksgiving and praise to him. We call him throughout the psalm, our God and our Lord. The psalm has in it three of these calls to praise. The first one in verse 1, praise the Lord for it is good to sing praises to our God. The second in verse 7, sing to the Lord with thanksgiving. And the third in verse 12, praise the Lord, O Jerusalem. And I think these three calls to praise mark the three stanzas of the psalm. Each of these three calls to praise is followed by reasons for giving praise to him. But taking as the occasion for this psalm that it was after the return from captivity or an event similar to that anyway, we look at the psalm under the theme praising the Lord for restoring Jerusalem. And we look first at verses 1 to 6, building the city and gathering the outcasts. Then at verses 7 to 11, giving to the beast and ravens their food. And finally at verses 12 to 20, strengthening the gates and blessing the children. Now the only call to praise that we have in the first stanza of the psalm is that word hallelujah with which the psalm begins. And as we noted already in the introduction, this is common to these five psalms that close out the Psalter. They're all psalms of praise and it's found also in a couple of other psalms that occur earlier in the book. But if you look at the those hallelujahs that occur at the beginning and ending of these five psalms, you will see that in every case, those uh, hallelujahs stand alone. It's hallelujah, or praise the Lord, which is what the word hallelujah means. Hallelujah, praise the Lord. But it stands by itself. There's nothing that's directly connected with it. But here in Psalm 147, the first of those connects directly and immediately with the sentence that follows, so that we can't even really translate that first hallelujah as hallelujah. If you would say that, it would not seem to make sense. Hallelujah is no longer to us in our language a, an exhortation or a command, 
but it is in the Hebrew. And so we have to translate, praise the Lord, for it is good to sing praises to our God. It moves right into the uh, rest of the psalm. So let's then, that's the call to praise. Praise the Lord, or hallelujah. But let's look also at the reasons for praise, and those fall into two groups. You find the first group of reasons in verse 1 itself, and these have to do with the nature of praise, or with praise itself, and then you find the second group in verses 2 to 6, and these have to do with the works of God, for which we are to praise Him. In verse 1, then, we have those three reasons for praise. Why should we praise God? It is good to sing praises to our God. It is pleasant, and praise is beautiful. It is good, pleasant, and beautiful. Those are the three reasons for praise in verse 1. When we say that uh, it is good to sing praises to our God, I think we mean probably at least two things. First of all, it's right. That is, God has commanded us to praise Him. And it is right that we obey that command of God. It's good, therefore, in the sense that it's morally good. It's an act of obedience to Him, to praise Him. But we also mean, I think, by that word good, that it's right, or that it's fitting to praise Him. Because of who He is and because of what He does, it is proper, it is fitting, not just commanded, but proper and fitting that we should respond to Him with praise. It's a very fitting thing to offer praises to this God who has done such great things and is so great a God as our God is. The second reason that we find there is that it is pleasant. And I think that means simply that though this is a commanded uh, obligation for us, it is not a burdensome command. It is instead a pleasant and delightful thing for us to praise Him. It's the desire of our hearts. When we see how great and how good he is, then we find it a very pleasant and joyful, delightful thing to offer to him praises. And finally, praise is beautiful. And this perhaps relates more to how God thinks about our praise than it does to how we uh, give that praise. Of course, praise is beautiful. Our praise is beautiful, but it's beautiful to God. And it's beautiful to Him, not especially because of the skill with which we bring that praise to Him. He does not expect all of His people to be skilled musicians and great singers. But it is beautiful to Him because of the sincerity of heart with which the people, His people come to Him with that praise. So praise the Lord because it is good, it is pleasant, and it is beautiful. That's the first group of reasons we have here in this first stanza. But the second group of reasons, verses 2 to 6, relates to his works. 
You can see how it describes some of the works of God and urges us then to praise God for these works. The Lord builds up Jerusalem. He gathers together the outcasts of Israel. Now, if this belongs to the time of the return from captivity, it relates to uh, the time of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the heir of the throne of David, who was leader of the people of Judah when they came back from Babylon. It belongs to the time of Joshua, the son of Josedek, the high priest at that time, who served the people in that capacity. It belongs to the time of Ezra, who helped the people build the temple of God there in the city of Jerusalem, to the time of Nehemiah, who helped them build the walls of Jerusalem, to the times of Haggai and Zechariah, who were prophets to encourage them in the building of the temple, and to the time of Malachi, who warned the people against some of the sins into which they had fallen since they had returned from Babylon. This whole complex of Bible books then belongs to this period, if the psalm, in fact, does uh, celebrate the return of Judah to Jerusalem. But notice that though those books that we've talked about encourage the people in their work of building, that here it is said that the Lord builds Jerusalem. The Lord builds Jerusalem. That is his work. It was he who put it into the heart of Cyrus, the king of Persia, to allow the people to go back to their land, and who, through Cyrus, gave them the command to rebuild the house of God there in Jerusalem. It was God who protected them from the enemies who tried to stop them in their work. It was God who blessed them in that work from day to day until the time came that the work was finished. It was his work. One planted, another watered, Paul says, but God gives the increase. God builds his church, of which this city of Jerusalem is a type. And we are to praise him when we see his church being built. Furthermore, he gathers together the outcasts of Israel. The outcasts of Israel are those people of God who were taken away from their own land and who found themselves in a foreign land where they felt themselves to be strangers, who could never in those foreign lands in which they found themselves settle down and say, this now is my home. It wasn't home to them. Always their hearts, the hearts of the godly among the people of Israel, turned back to the city of Jerusalem. And always they said, through all the years of their captivity, our home is there. We are outcasts here. We do not belong here. And so God gathered these outcasts of Israel and brought them back to inhabit the city that he was building, to fill the city with residents again. He gathers together the outcasts of Israel. Isaiah talks about this in chapter 11 
of his prophecy, Isaiah 11, verse 12. He says, He will set up a banner for the nations and will assemble the outcasts of Israel and gather together the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. That's the work that God does here then as he is building Jerusalem. He is gathering the inhabitants of the city to give the city again its residence. And then finally, those residents, when they come to Jerusalem, come wounded and grieving, broken of heart because of their condition prior to it, because they have been in a foreign land. They have come spiritually damaged, if we may put it that way. And when they come to that city, God heals their broken hearts and binds up their wounds. This is God dealing with his people throughout the ages, gathering his church, healing the broken hearts of his people, binding up the wounds they suffer in the battle, uh, battles of this life. Ultimately, that happens in the new heavens and the new earth and the new Jerusalem, which he is building now. But it happens, too, every Lord's Day when we go to the house of God to be with his people. There in that house, he heals our broken hearts and binds up our wounds. Now verses 4 and 5 turn our attention away from the people of God to God's providential work in creation. And in this calling attention to our prov- the providential work of God, call attention especially to his greatness, his power, and his understanding. Great is our Lord and mighty in power. His understanding is infinite. That greatness, that power and understanding of the Lord are displayed in his counting of the stars. The stars are innumerable to us. Even with all our sophisticated equipment today, like the Hubble telescope and the James Webb telescope, we're nowhere close to counting the number of the stars. They are so great a multitude. But he knows the precise number of stars in the whole of his universe. There is not one star in the whole of his universe that can remain uncounted by him. This is, I think, a literal statement of fact. He knows the number of the stars and displays how great he is. And how wonderful is his power. Not only does he know or count the number of the stars, but he knows them all by name. We have names for a few, the North Star, Betelgeuse, and Sagittarius, and so on. We have named a few stars that are very prominent in the sky, but our Lord has names for every one of them. All that countless multitude of stars. He has a name for each one. He knows each star in its place and in its character and in its purpose for which he created it. Everyone known to him by name. Indeed, he is great. He is mighty in power. His understanding is infinite. And that expression in the Hebrew, his understanding is infinite, 
is a very uh, interesting expression. If we were to translate literally, it, it sounds very awkward in the English, but if we were to translate literally, we would say his understanding is without number. And you see, it's a use of the same word that you find in verse 4. He counts the number of the stars, the number of the stars, that in almost infinite multitude of stars. He numbers, but the scope of his understanding goes beyond the number of the stars. His understanding is without number. No one can plumb the depths of his understanding. No one can measure the depths of his understanding. It is infinite. If you could imagine men counting the number of the stars, still you could not imagine anyone counting the understanding of the Lord. That's what he displays in his creation. And then in verse 6 he returns again to what he does for the humble, for his people. The Lord lifts up the humble. And that's very similar to what he said in verse 3. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds He cares for and restores those who are afflicted. He exalts the humble, as James says in chapter 1 of his letter. He exalts the humble, but he casts the wicked down to the ground. And I think that's really the point that the psalm is getting at here. He exalts the humble, his people, the afflicted and poor, the ones who are broken of heart and wounded, spiritually wounded. But they're the only ones he treats that way. The wicked he casts down to the ground. Praise him then, the psalm says, for all these works. Praise him for building Jerusalem. Praise him for gathering her outcasts. Praise him for healing the brokenhearted and binding their wounds. Praise him for counting the number of stars and calling them by name. Praise him for his greatness, his power, and his understanding. Praise him because he exalts the humble. And praise him also because he casts the wicked down to the ground. In all these things, he shows himself worthy of our praise. And in all these things, we should find that it is good and pleasant and beautiful to praise him. That brings us then to the second stanza of the psalm. And here we find the call to praise in verse 7. Sing to the Lord with thanksgiving. Sing praises on the harp to our God. Now that word sing in the first line of verse 7 is not the usual Hebrew word for sing. It is instead the word that means answer or respond to. Also a very common word in the Hebrew, but usually translated as answer or respond to. Answer the Lord with thanksgiving, or respond to the Lord with thanksgiving. You see what he's getting at here. Our thanksgiving is a response to the Lord himself, the Lord's revelation of his power, his understanding, his greatness. Notice, too, that here we add a new idea to our praise, that this praise should be with thanksgiving. We are giving him thanks for being what he is, 
and for doing what he has done, whether it be good for us or not. And thirdly, notice that he says, sing praises on the harp to our God. When you look at this whole subject of singing in the Old Testament, you find that it began with the building of the temple, at least in the worship of God. It began in the building of the temple. The temple was essentially a replica of the tabernacle. It had the same buildings, the same altars, the same furniture in the holy place, and so on. But the worship of God was different in this respect. That David, by God's instruction, appointed a Levitical choir to sing in the temple. And to sing on the harp, for his mercy endures forever. And this is recalling that, sing on the harp to our God. These psalms, about half of which David himself prepared, sing these psalms to him on the harp in his presence. Now notice also that in the following verses, there is no direct mention of what he does for his people. Here in the Reasons given for this praise, we find he described his providential works in creation. Four of those works are mentioned. He covers the heavens with clouds. You see the clouds coming onto the heavens, covering up the heavens so that the sun or the stars are hidden from us. It is God who does it, who prepares rain for the earth. When the rain falls on the earth, it is he who sends that rain. He makes the grass grow on the mountains. That is also his work. He gives to the beast its food and to the young ravens that cry, responding to them, their cry, with his goodness, providing for them food. So four separate works of God, but notice that it's not just four separate works of God that we're talking about here, but works that are uh, arranged in a progressive order so that he covers the heavens with clouds, so that the clouds may give rain. The rain falls on the earth then, so that the grass may grow on the mountains. And the grass grows on the mountains, so that the beast and the young ravens may have their food. There's not only then a celebration of the fact that God has done these works, but also the wisdom with which he has done them, so that all of these creatures show interdependence. They cannot do without each other. They cannot continue their existence without each other. And this too, this interdependence of these creatures is his work. And we could point, of course, to thousands of these interdependencies of the creatures of his creation. God has so intricately woven the creation together that all the parts of the creation depend on the other parts of the creation. And it's this dependence then, first of the creatures on each other, but then also of the dependence of these creatures on God, for he covers the heavens with clouds and prepares the rain and makes grass grow. The interdependence of the creatures on each other and their dependence on God, that is the basis for verses 10 and 11. Because here he's talking about 
where our dependence should be. And the point he's making in verse 10 is not that God despises certain uh, parts of his creation, that he uh, despises, for example, the strength of the horse, and that he has no pleasure in the legs of a man, objectively speaking. These are his creation, and he said of them they are good. He takes pleasure in them as his creations. But what he does not delight in is when we put our trust in them. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God, Psalm 20. He does not take pleasure in those who put trust in their own strength, in the legs of a man. He is not, he does not take pleasure in that because he has made us like his other creatures to be dependent on him. And to be dependent on him not just for physical life and well-being here in the world, but to be dependent on him for spiritual life and well-being. So he does not delight in our trust in the strength of the horse, in our trust in our own strength, but what he delights in, what gives him pleasure is those who fear him and those who hope in his mercy. To fear him is to humble ourselves before him, to acknowledge his greatness and our insignificance, to acknowledge that he is the one who has created all things and upholds them by his power, and that it is constantly his presence in the creation that maintains it in existence and that maintains us in our existence. Because of his infinite greatness, then also to tremble before him. He wants us to fear him. That's what delights him. He doesn't want us to trust in ourselves. He wants us to fear him. He wants us also to hope in his kindness or mercy. He doesn't want us to hope in our horses. He doesn't want us to hope in the strength of our legs. He wants us to hope in his kindness. And that word kindness or loving kindness that the psalmist uses there means, of course, that this is something that God gives apart from any merit, any uh, uh, worth on our part. It is his sheer kindness that gives this to us. Nothing else. We have to hope, therefore, not because we have proved some kind of value in the sight of God for ourselves, but simply because He is the God who is kind. That's the kind of dependence He wants from us. And that's the kind of dependence that is pleasing to Him. So that whole passage there about the interdependence of the creatures and the dependence on the, creature, uh, the creatures on God himself is leading us to this point and to the point where we are supposed to draw the lesson that we are as dependent on God as all those creatures are and that therefore we should fear him and hope in his mercy. Praise him, then, the psalm says, for these works, these works in his creation, which demonstrate to you your dependence. Praise him for the fact that 
he is a God of kindness, and that he is a God who takes pleasure in those who fear him. Then in verses 12 to 20, we have the final call to praise. Praise the Lord, O Jerusalem. Praise your God, O Zion. It's very specific. This time the call to praise is very specific. It was implied, even strongly implied, in the previous calls to praise. It is good, he says in verse 1, to sing praises to our God. And in verse 7, sing praises on the harp to our God. It's clearly he's addressing God's people. He's addressing us. But here he makes it very explicit, very plain. Praise the Lord, O Jerusalem. Praise your God, O Zion. Why? Because of that extraordinary goodness that God has shown to his people and which he shows to no other people or nation on earth. Now, what are the reasons for that praise? They are, first of all, reasons that have to do with what he does for us. Verses 13 and 14. He has strengthened the bars of your gates. Talking about the city of Jerusalem and going on, I think, from the building of Jerusalem and the uh, uh, care of the inhabitants, the gathering of the inhabitants of Jerusalem, now to the care of those inhabitants in the city of Jerusalem. He strengthens the bars of your gates. That is, he makes the city a, an impregnable fortress which no enemy can overwhelm. He builds his church on a rock and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. It is that glorious city, beautiful in elevation, before which the kings of the earth tremble and run away in fear, as we sang in Psalm 48. He has strengthened the bars of your gates. Count her bulwarks. Go all around her. Look at her towers. Consider her palaces. Because this God who built this city is our God forever and ever. He has blessed your children within you. Not only does he fill the city with residents, but he gives the residents of the city children, according to his promise to Abraham. I will make your children as innumerable as the stars and as the sand. He blesses those children. And in blessing those children, he gives generation after generation to inhabit his city, as long as earth shall last. So he blesses you, but he gives to your children the same blessings that he has given to you. He makes peace in your borders. And this refers not just to peace with enemies without. He so defends the city that the attacks of the enemy can not disturb the peace of that city. But he gives peace within, removing strife between brothers and sisters in the Lord. He gives peace with himself. My peace, the Lord said, I leave with you. A peace that passes understanding. And he fills you with the finest wheat. He feeds you. 
every day. You may drink freely of the water of life, eat abundantly of the bread of life with which he feeds your souls. You have a life. You have a life within that city of God. And he feeds that life. He nourishes and protects and defends that life. and makes it a peaceful and an abundant life in his city. That is in his church. Again, we have in verses 15 to 18 this time, reference to his providential works. And here it is his managing of the seasons. He gives snow like wool, he scatters the frost like ashes, he casts out his hail like morsels. I think those are very visual metaphors that he's using there. You see the freshly fallen snow lying on the earth, white and smooth as the finest wool. You see the frost, the hoarfrost, like ashes, like the ashes of a fire, still hot from the fire, but smooth and soft and with beautiful patterns interwoven into them. He casts out his ice like morsels or his hail like morsels. You see that hail lying on the ground like morsels of bread or like morsels of food. These are very visual metaphors that he's using here to describe the beauty of wintertime. But then in verse 18 we see springtime coming. He sends out his word and melts them. He causes his wind to blow and the waters flow. All this he does by his word. That's an important concept here in these verses 15. He sends out his command to the earth. His word runs very swiftly through the earth. And again in verse 18, he sends out his word. He causes his wind to blow. He speaks his word and these things happen. His word is powerful. His word is strong. And when he speaks his word, who can stand before his cold? Men shiver and build themselves fire and hide away in shelters to escape from his cold because they cannot stand before it. Now the question, of course, is why bring, keep on going back to creation throughout this psalm when the psalm seems to be primarily a celebration of his goodness to his people? Well, partly, of course, we see his praiseworthiness in these works. They stand by themselves as testimonies to his greatness and to his worthiness of our praise. But partly also these things are referred to, I think, to persuade us that he is able to do for us the good he intends. Does the question arise ever in our minds, can he do all these unimaginable things that he has promised to us? And the answer is, look at what he has done in his creation. If he is able to do those things, then surely he is able also to do for you the things he has promised. 
But the, you see this relationship, I think, especially as you transfer then to the last two verses of the psalm. Because here we carry on that idea of his word. He sends out his command to the earth. His word runs very swiftly. He declares his word to Jacob. He gives his word to his people, his statutes and his judgments to Israel. That powerful word, that same powerful word that makes the creation work the way it does is the word that he declares to his people. He gives it to them as a gift and that word becomes powerful in them to accomplish for them the purposes he has declared concerning them. Now, this does not mean that that word of God is to be declared only to his people, objectively speaking. That's not the, what the psalm has in mind here. The psalms and other passages of the scripture make very clear that God declares his word to all the nations. But in declaring his word to all the nations, he makes a distinction between peoples. He has his own people, Jacob and Israel, chosen from among all the nations. And he makes that word effective and powerful among them to accomplish their good. But when that word is declared to the rest of the nations, it does not accomplish that. Also according to his purpose, it does not accomplish their good. He has not dealt thus with any nation. And as for his judgments, they have not known them, because God has withheld them from them. They do not have them in the same sense that his people do. And this is reason for praise also, isn't it? That he has singled out us, who are not worthy, who are not any different than the rest of the nations, who are not great, who are not lovable, who have not obligated him to us in any way, he singles us out and declares to us his word and gives to us his statutes and his judgments. He deals with us with a goodness and beneficence that he does not show to others. And for that reason, too, we praise the Lord. You are then a richly blessed people, a people for whom he has built a city, a people who were outcast, and whom he has brought into that city to be residents there. And bringing you in, he has healed your broken hearts and bound up your wounds. There in that city, he defends you, he feeds you, he gives you children and blesses those children. And he gives you ultimately his word, his word which affects all these things for you. Glory dwells in your land because it is the land of the Lord our God of which he has made you residents. To him, therefore, all praise and glory and honor and blessing forever. May God bless his word for us.